Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project based at Queen Mary, University of London and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk and follow us on Twitter at at autismcinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word. Leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email on cinemaautism at gmail.com to let us know what you like about the show. Many thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome, one and all, to the Autism Through Cinema podcast. My name is David Hartley, and I am joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Georgia Bradburn. Good morning, Georgia. Good morning, David. Hi. And also by Lillian Crawford. Good morning, Lillian. Good morning. Hello to both of you. Um, great. So I've written I've written a proper introduction this time. Here we go. The year is 2019. The city is Los Angeles, USA. The vibe is pretty dystopian. Everything is dark and rainy and a bit gloomy. The problem is an existential crisis. A group of cyborgs are stalking the streets, robots who look and act exactly like real human beings. The only difference between humans and these replicants is that the replicants are not supposed to be able to feel emotions. Also, replicants are created as adults and have an inbuilt four-year lifespan, so you can perhaps see why everyone is so miserable. We are, of course, talking about Blade Runner, Ridley Scott's 1982 science fiction classic, which is the subject of our discussion today. Uh, Long-time listeners might uh, have heard us mention Blade Runner a few times on this podcast. Uh, This episode has been quite a long time coming. Um, During my uh, PhD, which I finished a couple of years ago, I looked at the relationship between autism and science fiction, and Blade Runner became one of my key case studies. So I have looked at it in quite some depth over the years. I have also published an academic paper about Blade Runner and autism, which I've shared with Lillian and Georgia, who've, who've both read. Um, and it's also it's linked in the in the show notes below, if you can get access to it. The paper is called, Is This to Be an Empathy Test? Autism and Neuroqueer Expression in Blade Runner. And it was published in the Journal of Science Fiction, Film and Television uh, in 2022, last year. So my analysis of the film in that paper makes suggestions that we can maybe look at Blade Runner as an example of a film which has as its thematic core a kind of reflection on the difference between different neurotypes with the replicants, the cyborgs of the film standing in as an almost almost as neurodivergent figures. I'm also looking, I also sort of find parallels in the ways in which uh, the replicants in the film are subjected to an empathy test, which is called a, a Voigt-Kampf test in the film, uh, which has some similarities to some real-life uh, so-called empathy tests that uh, many autistic people have undergone and continue to undergo, no doubt. Um, but I'm also suggesting as well in the paper that the uh, spectacular emphasis in Blade Runner on the sensory realm, particularly on vision, but also on sound as well, potentially aligns with a, a, an autistic sensibility. 
To the extent that I think Ridley Scott's aesthetic here in this film is maybe a clue to where our viewer sympathies can end up lying, not necessarily with Rick Deckard, the hero played by Harrison Ford, but with the various replicants of the film. So the rebels that Deckard is trying to hunt down and exterminate, and also Rachel, the kind of femme fatale figure, the replicant he encounters, that Deckard encounters during his detective work. So the plot of the film is this. Deckard is a detective who is brought out of retirement. He is a Blade Runner. Um, he's brought out of retirement, and he's, his task is to go and find and kill a group of four rebel replicants. These replicants, who have been led by the enigmatic and philosophical Roy Batty, pl wonderfully played, actually, by Rut Rutger Hauer, um, they've returned to Earth. They sort of, they've been used as kind of slaves off-planet or slaves and kind of soldiers and as um, sex workers as well. And they've returned to Earth to demand uh, this uh, change to their four-year lifespan. They've gone and sought out uh, Tyrell, who is the man that, that owns the corporation that made them, and they want to change their four-year lifespan. They want to live longer, they want to experience more of life in the world, and they want to escape the bonds of oppression. They go about this very, very violently, but they are kind of these desperate figures who are in search of more life. Blade Runner is a really interesting film. There's a lot of ambiguity and unease in the film. Um, Deckard, who is our hero, is something of an anti-hero, is a bit of a pathetic loser in many ways, um, and makes some some pretty dark decisions in some res in some respects. And Batty and his and his rebel gang are kind of revolutionaries, but also they're pretty violent and murderous and very dangerous. So that is the the murky world of 2019 of Blade Runner. Uh, as I mentioned before, it was released in, in 1982. It wasn't necessarily a hit at the time. Um, it's quite famous for having quite having sort of flopped really when it when it first came out. Didn't really make as much money as they were they were hoping. It also went massively over budget because Ridley Scott was so obsessed with making every tiny detail perfect. Um, uh, but since then, it, since then, in the throughout the eighties and the nineties, it became something of a something of a kind of underground cult classic, especially during the advent of the VHS of the videotapes. Um, lots of people bought it on videotape and watched it uh, at home. And then it got re it kind of got revived during uh, in sort of nineteen ninety two when Ridley Scott um, did a director's cut of the film, the original theatrical release of the film. He wasn't happy with how it came out um so he did a director's cut and then a few a few years later he also did a final cut where he tinkered a, a little bit with some some of the smaller details in the film and, and made a, a, a kind of final cut i tend to only ever watch the final cut these days unless I, I want to look at something to do with what was going on in the theatrical cut but usually i'll, I'll be watching the final cut and i think that's probably the one we'll be referring mostly to but we maybe might talk about some of the, the differences as well um, so yeah, that's Blade Runner. It's quite a complicated film with a long history, um, but also a film I just absolutely adore, and I, I, I've always loved it. Um, it's always been right up there in my uh, top ten of all time. So, Lillian and Georgia, I'll turn to you now. If indeed you are real human beings, <laughs> um, I'm sure you are. You definitely are. Uh, so, what's your um, what's your history with Blade Runner then? And I'm I'm interested to to get your thoughts on whether you think there is a kind of neurodivergent parable playing out in this film, uh, or or whatever you think of it. 
Yeah, I when did I come to Blade Runner? I think it was a film that I was sort of aware of in the way that one becomes aware of a certain canon when one is about 12 years old for Empire magazine and Blade <laughs> Runner was probably ranked quite highly in there. Mm. Um and I suppose I thought that it would probably, based on the fact that it had a 15 rating on the Blu-ray that I was given for Christmas one year when I had it on my sort of watch list that I would um, show to family members, that it was going to be darker than something like Star Wars, which I was very obsessed with at the time. Um, I don't think I quite understood it the first time I watched yeah. it. Um, I think I thought it was very beautiful and I was mesmerised by it visually. I don't think it really occurred to me at the time about the testing, mm. which is which is surprising because um, now it really does. And I think it, I was going through a lot of testing when I was a child that was vaguely reminiscent of of the Voight-Kampff test. Um, we can talk about that more. I think that'd be mm. a good thing for us to discuss. Um, but I remember watching Dangerous Days which is the three-hour documentary about the making of Blade Runner, which I watched immediately after I watched the film the first time. I had a day where I, I sat down and watched Blade Runner, then I watched Dangerous Days, and then I watched Blade Runner again. And the <laughs> second time I felt like I kind of got a sense of it. Mm. Um, and I hadn't... Um, but I... Um, words. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I... You had your epic Blade Runner day. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so I think the second time I engaged with it more and got more out of it, and I hadn't revisited it until I saw Blade Runner 2049 yeah. in whenever that came out by Denethor Nerve, which is the sequel. Um, and that film really had something in it that really resonated in a very specific way and that I found very intellectually fascinating, which was the characterization of joy the sort of um, a holographic um, assistant that Agent K, played by Ryan Gosling, has in that film. That she's her character is so fascinating to me as um, what as sort of tailored to this character and how she interacts with him and how she figures. Um, and there's a scene in that film when she, uh, K wants to have sex with her. And she brings a sex worker into mm. the apartment and there's this sort of blurring between the two bodies that I thought was um, really fascinating at the time in in terms of its um, understanding of, of sex work and, and of sort of female creation, which I think is something that's really important in Blade Runner is, is the way yeah. in which these, sort, the, the, these sorts of uh, replicant women or indeed neurodivergent women to some extent are fetishized and almost sort of molded by the 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 neurotypical man almost which i think is a really interesting dynamic within the film um and the sort of the sexual tensions that exist between Kay and joy and deckard and rachel in in the first blade runner is really fascinating to me and has caused an awful lot of controversy where I think people watch these films. I think I perhaps did when I watched Blade Runner the first time where I, I sort of thought that um, there was an assault element to mm. the, the sex in these films. But re-watching re it, I um, 
I didn't detect that so much. Um, but there seems to be there's something more consensual, but then the in but it's it, it's really complicated. But yeah. where um in in terms of the dynamic that exists between them, and I can understand why these films have generated a certain feminist response, but actually um I I would almost I don't know. I think this is something to, for us to discuss. Mm. Um, but it's it's something that, as I say, I have been thinking about since the first time I saw it. And then, uh, yeah, revisiting it now, having read um, your your article on Blade Runner a few times now, um, which I revisited again yesterday, um, which which I think frames the film in a very specific way, and also. Um, David talked about the uh, film at the Autism Free Cinema Conference that we had mm. in January at Queen Mary, and being able to see it illustrated with the actual clips themselves was really helpful and really useful um, to actually understand the mechanics of certain scenes, um, which you talk about in in the article, wherein the actual sort of filmic grammar of the scene in the editing. And in the way it's shot um, is used to communicate a certain neurodivergent sensibility, which I think yeah. is something that um, this film does in a really interesting way. And why science fiction often, I think, lends itself to exploring neurodivergent forms of communication without making it explicitly about that, um, mm. or even or even consciously being aware that it's that it's doing that, but it of course resonates with us in a, in a certain way. Um, yeah, George, do you want to talk a bit about your relationship with it? Yeah, I mean, so uh, Blade Runner is actually one of my, my parents' favourite films, and ever since I started getting into film, they were just sort of always like, you just need to watch Blade Runner, you need to watch Blade Runner. It's one of those things where when someone tells you to watch a film, uh, it makes you not want to watch it. Um, but I, I watched it um, like in my mid-teens, I think when I was in college, and I'll admit at, at the time I don't think I really, I don't think I really got it, just because, you know, looking at it in a traditional way, I didn't really quite understand the fact that the characters that are being set up to be the villains aren't really actually the villains because it, it really the characters like Roy Barty and Pris and the replicants they're sort of set up to be like the stereotypical like villain figures who are against the hero that is Deckard. Um and I I found it quite I found it quite difficult to align with that perspective because I always saw them from the start as as the victims, which is really how the film is is set up. So watching it um I think the, 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 this is actually the second time I watched it a couple couple of days ago in the wake of seeing um David's paper at the conference and reading um, reading the paper, um, I had these different frameworks in my mind for reading the film and deliberately viewing it as something that is quite subversive in terms of identification. Um, and I think w one of the things that I realised upon watching it this time is that the film in itself is somewhat of an empathy test, um, especially through through the use of identification i think using harrison ford as like uh playing this hero character is quite clever because i think that's kind of what he's associated but uh, you know as we've said before he's kind of kind of the worst character <laughs> in the whole film i think 
Um, he's a bit wimpy and he's a bit um, he's a bit horrible. Um, and yeah, I remember the first time watching it, thinking I just can't really relate to this character at all. I don't really understand why he's doing what he's doing. And then you understand, you know, sometimes people do things because they're told, you know, they're conditioned uh, to do this because of their experience and because of authority figures. And then when we're talking about that in terms of like neurotypicality and uh, as opposed to the subject of the neuroqueer, which David talks about in his paper, this is someone, you know, that is very heavily conditioned um, by the condition, like by society and their role. Um, and we see as the film goes on that it's it's Deckard who seems to sort of gain some empathy for the replicants, albeit through, you know, an attractive woman replicant, um, <laughs> which is the one thing. It's like, wow, replicants can be attractive? That's crazy. Um, but um, it's it's an interesting experiment because you get this this really beautiful monologue, famous monologue at the end um, uh, by uh, Roy Batty, uh, the sort of antagonist, quote-unquote, um, about this, you know, I've seen things that you can't imagine. Um, these memories are sort of, uh, that, that have been implanted in these replicants' brains that aren't real, kind of wash away like tears in the rain, you know, and these lives are sort of treated as meaningless because they're they're manufactured, they're not seen as human. And there's a line that that goes through the film and into 2049 as well, which is more human than human. Um, and if we look at that in terms of in terms of autism, it's something that's I think the line more human than human is something that aligns very strongly with the uh, the double empathy um, uh, yeah, the double empathy thing. Um, because you know it, it suggests that um, whilst autistic people are common or neurodivergent people are commonly seen as lacking in empathy, it's actually, a, la a lack of empathy on the part of the neurotypical who is unable to judge the fact that another person's empathy might be rooted and may might be formed in a different way than their own and it's a refusal to assimilate that person into into this into society and into that culture and this disconnect between the neurotypical and the the neuroqueer subject is sort of what gives Blade Runner its sort of shift in who we identify with, who we empathise with. By the end, we, we do feel really, um, well, I do personally, I resonate strongly, especially with characters like Roy Batty and, and Pris, who will go through these awful um, deaths at the end of the film, coming coming to the end of their life, lifespan, but also being, being wounded by the Blade Runner. Um, just simply for existing and wanting to live a longer life, um, and which doesn't really seem like uh, you know too much of an antagonistic aim. So, looking at it uh, a few years later from the perspective of you know this is a film that can be interpreted through uh, discourse around neuroqueer, it's been really uh, impactful for me because I'm also someone who aligns with films that are rooted in the fantastical and science fiction that's sort of where I come from in terms of my fascination with film um, and the way that you know these experimental uh, forms of world building and character building uh, can uh, sort of manipulate your perspective to consider a perspective that isn't prioritized um, 
So yeah, I'm actually, you know, I'm glad that I watched it now in the way that I did with this this way of thinking about it. Mm. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, both of you. And um uh really fascinating to 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 listen to you pick up on some of these things. I mean, there's so much really to dig into with this with this film. The I, I want to talk a bit about the empathy test in a moment, but also with with Rachel, obviously, and and with Pris. We really should talk about Pris for various reasons. But I, I like that you pick up on the more human than human motto, which is uh bandied around in in both the Blade Runner films and is uh kind of has this kind of grand feel to it, but it's also this kind of really dark edge to it as well. And it reminds me of uh, when I started doing a lot of reading around the relationships between uh, autism and science fiction, and particularly sort of the use of, of science fiction or fantastical phrasing when talking about autistic people in, in, in real life, in real, real world. And one of the things that I often trip, tripped across was, uh, was people doing the, I don't know, some people saying these kind of like, uh, trying to sort of suggest that autistic people are in some way the next, like almost like the next stage of evolution for humans, or 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 a kind of like um, th- there's literally one paper somewhere that I, I've read somewhere that's called human but more so, and it's like the the paper tries to argue that autistic people are have all the qualities of humans, but like to the next stage like exaggerated or better in some respects and a lot of these these kinds of arguments to me seem like a kind of uh, a way of trying to compensate for the fact that autistic people have not really been part of society in a proper way for a long long time and there's then just sort of kind of going oh but yes autistic people are these kind of wonderful angelic beings and i think it's just it's not a helpful way of sketching anything together and but we are david well of course you are in, in many ways of course you are <laughs> But also in other ways, it's like that's not that puts you on this kind of impossible yeah. pedestal, right? Sure. And I think that that's that's when again another one of these things that, that that I sort of found in Blade Runner is this this tagline of more human than human, and, and it's Tyrell that says it at one point, and he says, you know, more human than human. That's our that's our motto here at the Tyrell Corporation. We're trying to make better humans. Um, whereas actually, what we really should be doing is just trying to understand what humanity is in all of its variations and that we all sort of live on the same kind of level and plateau or we should and we find we try and find ways of making that happen but let's talk let's talk a little bit about the empathy test because this is the really the the one thing that really hooked me into thinking about Blade Runner as a as a as a as a film that's potentially about the neuroqueer, about autism, uh, about neurodivergence. We have in this film the Voigt-Kampf test, which is this strange thing, really, uh, where, well, it's, it's worth noting, really, that this arises from the book that the uh, film was kind of loosely based on. So the book is Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick, who was himself clearly a very neurodivergent person um whether he i don't think he was ever sort of diagnosed as autistic but he was certainly he had schizophrenia i think he he was potentially bipolar i'm, I'm not sure quite exactly what he was diagnosed with but he was a very he, he had lots of uh, different neurodivergent things going on um but also a very prolific science fiction writer and very well respected science fiction writer wrote the book do androids dream of electric sheep and that also had uh, a sort of empathy test within it as well and that's what then kind of ended up in the film this empathy test is called the called the voigt kampf test and it we see it um we see it twice in the film it's uh, it's at the beginning when it is used on one of the rebel replicants leon and then later uh, Deckard does uh, does the same test on rachel and what's quite interesting about this test is it sort of takes place 
they have this weird sort of contraption that sits in the middle of the table that is kind of reading the emotional responses from the person who is being tested. And the tester, uh, the interviewer, the Blade Runner, sits at the other side and asks a series of emotionally charged questions. Well, they're not really questions. They're sort of like anecdotes, like statements of things that are, that uh, that could happen. And then the, uh, the, the subject is supposed to have an emotional response to them. And the machinery detects whether there has actually been any emotional response. And if it doesn't detect anything, it says this person is a replicant. And that's the only way that they can find out whether... Uh, whether a person is a replicant or not. But there's a lot of question marks throughout the film of whether that, the test actually works. They're all quite worried that it that it doesn't work or that it's that the replicants are becoming so advanced that they're able to sort of beat the test in a way. But the reason why I sort of jumped on this test was because it kind of has this like um, uh, relationship to that there are some like kind of real life quote unquote empathy tests that are uh, that were created to sort of diagnose autistic people uh, there's one called the autism quotient and there's one actually called the empathy quotient and they're both still uh, available actually and probably still used in some respects or some variation of them still used um and you can find them freely find them on online as well if you google the autism quotient test you can still find it and those tests are like a series of kind of quite vague and ambiguous questions like oh I don't really like going to parties. Do you agree with this or disagree with this? Or one of the questions is, I don't particularly enjoy reading fiction. And if you put, if you tick agree to that question, if that statement, I don't particularly enjoy, enjoy reading fiction, then the test thinks that you are autistic. So it's this inbuilt bias that suggests that autistic people are like kind of not interested in the arts or in fiction or or storytelling um or don't enjoy going to parties and it's so kind of it's so kind of vague and based on these very neurotypical um orders and lines and boundaries that we sort of draw around things and sort of it's just depressing when you look at it in, in detail it kind of doesn't work um and it's sort of based upon it was based upon all of this kind of research that was done that suggests that autistic people sort of lack empathy which is something that has been um a completely um set aside now and has completely kind of been disproved but um still sort of sits there embedded within these tests that are used to in the diagnostic process of autism and i sort of found that there was a kind of really interesting parallel there with how that's played out played out in blade runner with the void comp test especially since like Leon during the scene where Leon is being tested he is visibly really kind of distressed about the situation and he's put into this situation where he's clearly really uncomfortable and really struggling and this guy is just sort of pummeling him with these weird statements about deserts and tortoises and turtles and he's confused he doesn't know what's going on um and I found that really a really kind of compelling yeah. um representation really yeah definitely I mean that to me perfectly captures the experience of being tested as a child and yeah. it's not articulated to you why you're being tested or what you're being tested for there's no real understanding of it I mean I remember when I was a child being at primary school and there was this person um so often different people who would be sort of sent into the school to watch me wow. and I remember being on the playground minding my own business because I wouldn't talk to anyone um and I would look over and notice this person watching me wow. and I'd be like 
they're spying on me. Uh, I mean, I probably watched too many James Bond films when I was a <laughs> child, but I, I I thought that this person was like investigating me. Mm. And then I remember being called into a room, which was like a small sort of broom cupboard like room and sat down and shown all these pictures of different facial expressions and asked questions like, um, how do you feel about the song, I've Got You Under My Skin? Which is hilarious to me <laughs> that this is still a question that's used in autism testing wow. um, for children, given, I mean, what child now is familiar <laughs> with Frank Sinatra songs. But um, it's just very, very funny, but also quite disconcerting. And I remember yeah. being in these situations so when I watched that scene with Rachel in particular. Mm. I just think that's this is what it felt like. It was like this weird thing where someone just sits down and pulls out these sort of cards and these questions and they're interrogating you. And um, I remember uh, studying and reading uh, Mark Haddon's Curious Instant of the Dog in the Nighttime when I was in year eight or year nine, I think, when I was at secondary school. Um, and I found it fascinating because it was the first time I actually really sort of became aware of what that testing actually was because in mm. the book Haddon sort of recreates these tests, the mm. empathy test and and so on and and talks about it. And, the, and those questions are in there and it's like, and it's um, the protagonist, uh, Christopher Boone, sort of reflections on those questions and the interrogation of them. And I remember when, whenever I've sort of done autism testing in my own, um, over the years before my sort of, formal final diagnosis eventually happened because it's just been complicated over the years by the fact that the testing has changed and that our understanding of the testing has changed from when I was a child and it was sort of as as the testing for Asperger's and then take later on taste testing for um ASC. So it's 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 different questions. And I think that the real shift that we've seen in those in those questions is um how those questions are gendered and how the responses mm. are gendered and our understanding of gender. And I think that what's so fascinating about those two different white conf scenes that we get in the first part of the film is that the first one we have with, with, um, with Leon is, is this very, as you say, sort of distressed and almost antagonistic to, I mean, to the point where he's asked about his mother and he just sort yeah. of, and he shoots the guy and it's like, <laughs> okay, that's one response. And then the other response is that we get Rachel sort of, um, I mean, you talk about this in your mm. in, in your paper where you say, um, so too does it help to engender a sympathetic connection with Rachel by suggesting that her cool demeanor masks a more troubling self-torment. And I think that that mm. to me is exactly what's going on there. Um, Rachel sort of seems quite dispassionate and cool and almost aloof to the situation, which is something that... I very much relate to because people will think that I am not distressed in a situation when I am, but I'm masking so effectively that they have yeah. no idea. Um, and and I think that it it gives people an impression of you that might actually be different to what's going on in in inside. And I and I wonder if that in itself is something to do with. I mean, the the idea of masking is very much inherent to this film, of like passing as human or passing as neurotypical yeah so the neurodivergent has to to maintain that impression to a, to to a very extreme extent because in this world if you fail and you are and you and you are proved to be a replicant you die yeah. <laughs> you know it's not, um which um i'd like to think is you know not true or a million miles from truth but like <laughs> eugenics is very much a thing yeah. um and and the sort of 
the idea of cures that autism speaks has had over the years or claim no longer to have but certainly um is very much part of autism speaks as as an organization um and and, and also historically forms of sort of eugenics and 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 curbing people away from sort of uh you know anti-vaccines as being mm. the cause of autism and so forth that the eugenics is very much a part of um of of discussion around neurodivergence that it doesn't actually feel a million miles away yeah um it, it's it's quite an extraordinary idea in terms of the neuroqueer as you frame it which is to use one to sort of resist neurotypicality and and sort of the oppression that that places on us um is is the idea that actually to sort of rebel against this kind this very specific form of tyranny that exists within the dy- the, the dystopia of blade runner which is i get i don't know to be like pris i guess to mm. sort of o- openly performatively stimming and um you know pre- pre- not not presenting in the way that people would perhaps want a woman to present you know not not in the sort of noirish femme fatale quasi Lauren Bacall look that um, Rachel has in um, by contrast to some someone like press is like two extreme forms and and I suppose you could typify um, Rachel as masking and press as 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 the the sort of embodiment embodiment Mm. of what neuroqueerness looks like um have we actually defined that that term I just want I just want to check because I think that I, I just want to check that I worry sometimes that when we talk about that, that that the listeners aren't aware yeah. of what that might mean. And of course, the word queer has very specific sexuality connotations, connotations yeah. that that I think I think might be useful. So do, do you? Yeah, I'll try and throw as, out a bit of a yeah, a bit <laughs> yeah. of a kind of uh, overview of what neuroqueer is. I mean, this comes from mostly from uh, the writing of uh, Remy Yergo in particular. And Remy is somebody who actually came and spoke at our conference last year, uh, last year, which was really cool. Um, and uh, also Julie Miele Rodas as well, who's written a, a book about uh, the neuroqueer. Um, and the neuroqueer really, I mean, he sort of touched upon it already, Lillian, but really uh, what it sort of suggests is a, a way of, um, uh, acknowledge- firstly, it's a way of acknowledging the fact that neurodivergence and queerness have had this kind of interrelated history and present, really, and that um, uh, there's, there's, there's often a high incidence of queerness within uh, autistic communities and uh, neurodivergent communities, and this kind of, and a sort of shared uh outsiderness i suppose from kind of the neurotypical or heteronormative um standard if you like uh, or default so there's the kind of that that relationship which is why we get that combination of words but also for particularly for yergo i've got a little quote here actually so, so yergo says the neuroqueer is um proactive neurodivergence where quote subjects perform the perversity of their neurotypes end quote and it's a way of sort of embracing um the alternative ways of being that come through being neurodivergent whether that's kind of like openly stimming in public uh as an autistic person or um or resisting certain ways in which uh society is kind of constructed around neurotypicality but in a way that's that's very uh, proud and is very uh resistful and, and it kind of undermines or even outright kind of protests against kind of the op- the oppressions 
of neurotypicality. And I think that's kind of what neuroqueerness is and neuroqueerness does. And it was using that idea that I sort of wanted to look at, at Blade Runner as a way of thinking about, yes, where and how does the cinematic aesthetic, but also the characters of Blade Runner, how did they push against um, um, the, the typical ways of being? And I feel like there's a lot to see in this film, which is kind of taps into that kind of neuroqueerness of that kind of pushing against, uh, deliberately pushing against what we would conceive of as being the normal or the typical, I suppose. Um, and Pris is a really interesting character in that regard. I didn't really talk about Pris very much in the in the article. I didn't really find much room for her, but um, I think you're right in the way that she behaves and the way that she has a certain, has a kind of freedom for quite a lot of the film where she's not necessarily doing a whole lot or needing to do a whole lot. Um, just to put Pris in, in a bit of uh, context, she is a, uh, which I think she's described as a pleasure bot, but she's a kind of a sex worker um, uh, uh, replicant um, and she's part of this gang. And she seems, it seems to be her role in the rebellion, I suppose, is to sort of, she sort of seduces um Maybe seduces is quite the, not quite the right word. So she sort of makes friends with uh, the character J.F. Sebastian, who is a one of the designers who works for the Tyrell Corporation, and he's their way into to eventually meeting Tyrell. Um, and she goes and she sort of gently tricks him into letting her into his apartment, and then they kind of the replicants then kind of have a base in this in this apartment with Sebastian. But she just sort of spends a lot of her time there and you sort of see her doing gymnastics and just sort of wandering around and dressing up and spraying a black spray across her eyes at one point um, and talking to Sebastian and sort of wandering around. And we sort of see her in this kind of free, free kind of role, really. Also worth noting as a side note as well, that of course she was, Pris is played by Daryl Hannah and Daryl Hannah is, was one of the first people, one of the first Hollywood actors um, to to come out as autistic. Um, I don't actually know whether she knew she was autistic at the time of making Blade Runner. She was quite young, but um, uh, she certainly has, she, I've read a, an interview with her, which which says that she had a, had a really good time on the set of Blade Runner. She's probably actually one of the few actors who had a good time on the set of Blade Runner, because I thought by all accounts, it was a bit of a nightmare for everyone. But she said she had a wonderful time. She really got on well with Rutger Hauer. He, he looked, kind of looked after her. And she just had this wonderful time of like play acting as somebody else and of being in this kind of Hollywood sort of dreamland, really, of, of, of this sort of fantasy of this kind of set being created all around her and all this sort of thing. Um, so she's kind of really fascinating in that way. And I think she is one of those quite neuroqueer figures because she does have that time on screen where she's, Certainly, brief bits of time, but time on screen where she's sort of just being herself and is kind of allowed to be herself and is stimming and is kind of enjoying exploring and just being there, which is which is really quite nice. Really nice to see. Sorry, Georgia, do, do you want to say something? Um, I just um remember what the first time I watched Blade Runner and didn't really like connect with it. I do specifically remember the character of Pris as being like quite. It's something, you know, when you see a character and you, you don't resonate so much strongly, but aesthetically, thematically find that they are just um, really fascinating. And it was interesting to me because by no means is she like the main character, but I was drawn to her character way more than the others. And I think it was because of this aspect of this aspect of rebellion and refusing to de to um, 
you know, conforming to these neurotypes that are kind of set out in this world. Um, her ability to kind of like do gymnastics, move around, the bit where she just puts her hand in the in the thing of the boiled eggs um, and it's just kind of like playing around with it. Um, I just found it so like enthralling to watch someone like that. And as someone who, you know, like throughout my teen years has like, I've, I've participated in like, uh, you know, experimenting with my appearance and fashion and the way that I present myself as an act of sort of neuroqueering myself, I suppose. You know, when I, when I was a teenager, I was very much trying to not be what do what everyone else is doing just as like a, a deliberate action. And I think, you know, a cat character such as, as Pris um, resonate with that. And so looking at it from the neuroqueer perspective, it actually makes... Um, a lot of sense and it and it also makes her death all the more sort of um distressing for me to watch I mean all the deaths in this film are really distressing but hers in particular because you can see she is in so much pain I think I think is, is she shot or is she I can't remember yeah but she's shot because yeah. she's she attacks Decker doesn't she when he comes into the yeah. into the building and she's sort of like using her gymnastics and sort of uh jumps on him and is sort of strangling him with her thighs and all this sort of stuff and he gets rid of her and then and she's sort of backflipping away and he shoots her. Mm. And then he has to shoot her again because she's like yeah. screaming and thrashing on the floor. It's really, really horrible and distressing moment. And 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 actually, you know, it's kind of, he's quite distressed by it. He sort of is kind of panicking and he doesn't really know what to do and has to shoot her again in order to shut her up. And um, you're right, all the deaths in this film are, are really horrible um, and quite shameful. I mean, there's the other one, the Zora as well, who's one of the other replicants uh, earlier on in the film who Deckard has tracked down and she um, legs it and she runs through this, the very, very busy streets and he chases after her. And he basically just shoots her in the back as she's running away and she has yeah. to, you know, die by going falling through all these uh, plates of glass or these windows. Um, and again, and actually the, at, the point, at that point, the film is like, it's not saying, oh, hooray, Deckard has triumphantly beaten another one of these bad guys. It's kind of going, this is not good. And it's sort of, there's a slow motion and the, there's a bluesy soundtrack and everything's mm. very um, uh, melancholy. And it's like, we're not celebrating necessarily the death of this person who is supposedly one of the villains. Um, and I think the same applies to Pris. Um, potentially even maybe the same applies to Leon. I don't know, but... Um, yeah, and also definitely the same applies to Roy Batty at the end when he was sort of shuts down and dies because he's just given us this amazing, beautiful, the most beautiful speech of the film, potentially yeah. one of the most beautiful speeches of cinematic history, and he just fades away and dies. So it's, again, another interesting aspect of this film. I mean, you spoke before, Georgia, I think, about the fact of like watching the film and, and not really for the first time and not really knowing whether to who to sympathize with. And, and you know, you don't get a clear hero in this film, but also you don't necessarily get a clear villain either. And it and it's it's a it's a, an un, uncomfortable position to be put in as a viewer, especially when we're used to things like Star Wars and, and especially at the time of things like Indiana Jones and all these other things that were happening around that time when it was released, and and to be put in that space of kind of ambiguity in relation to these heroes and villains um, is an unusual one. And it also I think that also speaks to some of the sort of slightly neuroqueer um, outlook of the film is that it's saying it sets up these are your bad guys and then later it goes but actually are they all that bad and and should we be celebrating their deaths and what's going on here and 
And it's quite interesting in that regard, I think, yeah. That's why I, I sort of think the film in it itself sort of carries out a test in itself because you do feel, you know, like you're coming in, especially if, if you are you know, identifying as like a neurotypical viewer who, and, and a lot of narratives are set up as kind of sort of like us against them. That's just sort of the traditional uh, way, way those archetypes are set out. And it's sort of, it's sort of not really so subtly, but it does like subvert those for you um i think specifically the character of deckard is like a, a, a great example because he's just not likable really at all in any way and it's not like it's not like harrison ford plays specifically likable characters but he is like a hero character in a lot of these things and he has sort of this like sort of deadpan kind of well, I can be a bit mean, but like I'm still saving the day at the end of the day. But in Blade Runner, it doesn't feel like he is. I don't think anything he's doing is for the greater good. His his main character arc is realizing that actually it's him who has the lack of humanity. It's um, the the humans that are who are being dehumanized by uh, this technology and by this culture of erasing um, replicants, raising erasing things that don't conform. Um, to the rest of that society uh, and then as, as a viewer you start to think hang on like who 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 is the bad guy who's doing something wrong and it's such an interesting experiment for me especially in something like sci-fi where I feel like a lot of it is these grand narratives where it's sort of like good against evil and I suppose I mean I suppose Star Wars does it in a way where you sort of experiment with that sympathy for antagonists as you're kind of supposed to but here it's very it's so much more um, out there, it's so much more deliberate. I think Rutger Hauer's speech at the end kind of um, solidifies that. Yeah. yeah, I think there's something really beautiful about these characters, um, even in their deaths. I mean, the way their deaths are shot, yeah. as you said, David, is is it's almost sexual um, or sensual. I suppose there's a, there's a sensuality to the way that these characters die. And the way that they're, I, I don't know, I, I, there's, it, it sort of feels, I always find myself just sort of entranced by the beauty of it. Like when the, the one where you're describing where she's sort of in this raincoat and she falls through the glass, um, even Pris's death, it's, it's the sort of combination of Vangelis and, and slow motion and neon lighting and sort of, and often, make their nude bodies as well. Um, but I find, yeah, I, I don't know if that's part of the way that these characters are portrayed, that they are just sort of bodies almost, or if it's supposed to make us realise as they die that um, there was something very human about them anyway. Um, you know, it's interesting because I think that Autistic people often get compared to robots. I've certainly been told that I sort of write and speak like C-3PO at times, not well, more when I was younger than, than, than now that I'm older. And it's like, it, it gives a different version of the robot, I suppose, that, that, that feels more aligned with neurodivergence for me. Um, but I think, I think that that's really interesting, the sort of contrast between these characters and Deckard is that, is that there is there is a poetics to these characters that doesn't exist within Deckard, that Deckard is very, um, that De De Deckard has this sort of lack of eloquence. Um, and my God, Ryan Gosling is the same in um, Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> if there's a, 
ever a sort of silent, moody performance. And then you get two of them because you have Deckard and, and Kay sort of together in, in that film. And uh, they, they, the, the, these, are, this is sort of, well, I mean, obviously there's the whole debate around whether or not these, these characters are actually themselves replicants and if Deckard's a replicant. But I think that he isn't because all of the replicants in Blade Runner, um, have this sensibility or this ability to perceive things that um that that Deckard seems to me to be devoid of or incapable of that he's sort of failing to connect in that way um which which is why I, I mean one of the things that I wanted to talk about and I was particularly thinking about this time watching it is the character David you'll have to remind me of the character's name um who uh, whose job it is to create eyes do do you know the character I'm talking about? The 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 replicants go to find this scientist who creates um, the eyes in a laboratory that he freezes. You... Chew. His name's Chew, I think. Chew. Um, which, I mean, the the title of the book, "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" already sort of points towards um, the the myth of the Sandman, but this is in particular um, the case in this scene. Um, I'm in particular ETA Hoffman's version of the Sandman fairy tale, um, which has this turns the the Sandman who sort of, you know, in most people's as is often the case with fairy tales is that for most people the Sandman comes and sprinkles sand on your eyes so you fall asleep and you have beautiful dreams. But of course, in Hoffman's version, he's a sinister character who steals children's eyes and then feeds them to um, his young. Um, but it so it's a terrifying idea of having your eyes stolen. But the idea, the um, the story, famously used by Sigmund Freud in the essay on um, the uncanny or Unheimlich, which is this sort of sense of unfamiliarity that we have, or sort of almost too human, I suppose, as an uncanniness. That there's 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 something that the the idea of of the replicants as uncanny figures, and they are. In many ways, created in the same way that the um, the scientist Capelius creates these these figures in the story, um, and and I'm thinking in particular of sort of Palin Pressburger's Tales of Hoffman, um, Delib's, oh, sorry, um, the which is based on the Offenbach opera and the way that it's structured in 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 that plot and Delib's ballet Capelia, where you have Olympia the doll who is. Um, to everyone else, this sort of very obviously a dull mechanical figure, but there's this 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 character uh, Nathaniel who is able to perceive something more. So in in the story, he says to the the scientists and other people that um, the, the Olympia is only uncanny to you cold prosaic people because you don't have the sort of poet's gift that I have to perceive something more beautiful um, in these people, and that's that's what that that scene is sort of pointing at. For me, I mean, I don't know if that's sort of the way it, the way it's conceived, but it's certainly a huge part of it. Um, and and what's so interesting to me is that the the this this sense that to a lot of people, to um, a certain form of neurotypical perspective, the autistic person or the autistic woman in this case is very sort of robotic and um, uh, it, it's sort of um, the the way that Decker talks about Rachel after he's found out that she's a replicant and he start he changes the pronoun to it, which is um which is it, it sort of typifies that perfectly, I suppose, is is the idea of moving from 
thinking that someone is an attractive woman to then sort of ob- turning them into an object that they, they they no longer have a certain um uh a, a charm or character and i suppose the idea the idea for freud is that the uncanny is about a sort of infantile wish fulfillment as children um don't distinguish living and inanimate objects mm. um and and that 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 I suppose that's part of it is about how we're perceiving these these characters and the eyes is obviously a huge part of it and Roy Batty when he kills Tyrell himself gouges his eyes out and it's <laughs> the most graphic scene in the film where he sort of pushes in his his eyeballs um, and they bleed and the removal of of that sight and 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 of perception and I suppose the way that the female characters exist in Blade Runner is as images almost and there is this this extraordinary thing that I sort of find in my life and in general and I think that is the experience for a lot of autistic women is this sort of lack of ability to see or understand how other people are perceiving you um and I think that this idea of sort of a certain sexiness to autism in itself is is really fascinating and it's something that this film sort of uses and and a lot of the characters um are portrayed in that way i mean i keep calling i, I called her salome earlier but you said her real name which i forget um, oh zora uh, her, thank you zora who, whose whose stage name is salome which which in itself of course is a a, a, a nod to salome of the bible um and she has the the serpent and it's talked about briefly i can't remember the line precisely about the the serpent sort of luring luring in men into temptation that she is sort of you know there to dance her um dance of the seven veils and 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 get what she desires she has this power over um men who don't know that she's not real per se in the same way that her snake isn't real um sorry i'm just floating ideas around but this 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 to me is 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 very specifically fascinating because um, I don't think it's something that many other films necessarily deal with in quite the same way. Um, and then, of course, we do have that scene, which you also talk about in your paper, but, um, when Rachel um, is at the piano and she lets her hair down and the way that she sort of shifts in Deckard's perception, that she goes from someone that he sort of has this almost, this this real coldness towards, to someone or something almost, um, in the way that some people read read the scene um, when Vangelis gets his saxophone out, um, which, 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 um, where he, it, she is an object to him and it creates this sexual dynamic that, that really puts what I'm talking about in an abstract sense into practice that we see him sort of, um, you know, bar her from leaving. And then he, he, he takes, he asserts his sort of physical dominance over her and she, she gives in to him where, you know, the, the the debate around the consent of that and the power play in that scene goes on ever on I suppose but I do wonder if to some extent that his own desire for her is deriving from um, more the sort of cold prosaic way of looking at her rather than a poetic one um, in in that scene I I, I don't know I I would like 
to open that up for <laughs> discussion. There's, there's, there's sort of like two trajectories going on with these characters with Rachel and Deckard at this, at this point that is kind of converging in this scene. And I, I find Rachel an endlessly fascinating character, actually. I think she's kind of wonderful. And that we when we first meet her, she is this kind of classic femme fatale, so emerges from the sort of shadows. She's very tightly dressed with a very kind of figure-hugging suit and tight hair, and she's kind of snappy with her... Uh, banter back to Deckard and she's very cold and sexy and all this sort of stuff and then later in this film particularly in that scene um, she's softened a lot and she's and it's partly because and it's really important to say about Rachel uh, a, a thing about her her character is that that she is a replicant but she doesn't know that she's a replicant at the beginning when we meet her Um she has had memories implanted into her uh, brain. She's a, Tyrell ex, uh, describes her as a as an experiment, nothing more. Where she's had memories implanted into her brain, which memories that belonged to Tyrell's niece, and um, and so she believes that she's a, a human being. She believes she's lived a full human life, but she hasn't. And through the process of Deckard putting this um, test upon her, she comes to realize that she's actually been tricked and that she is a replicant. Um, and so the trajectory of her narrative is that she begins to accept the fact that she's not a real human, quote unquote, real human, that she is a replicant, she's been made, and also that she potentially might also have this four-year lifespan. She's not sure if she does or not. And um, and that's a profoundly difficult thing to sort of take on board. And for me, I sort of see that and think uh, think about, uh, I think a lot about like kind of uh, older women who get diagnosed as autistic later in life and and have to go through this period of like readjusting everything about themselves and thinking about well this is the way in which my brain works and it's this is the way it's always worked and actually certain things now make sense but also the world is a sort of different place and i need to kind of navigate that in some respects and i think there's a lot of that happening at the in the present day actually at the moment in the moment um and I see Rachel as this figure who is coming to terms with her own neurodivergence and is also at first sort of rejecting it. And then later, when we get this scene, when she's playing the piano, she's starting to take it on board and she's starting to absorb it and accept it and figure out what it means for her. She starts playing the piano and she says afterwards, you know, she wasn't sure whether um, this was, she wasn't sure whether this piano playing was something that she'd learnt uh, as a child. Uh, or if it was being implanted in her brain. So she wasn't sure if it was actually a real skill for her. And Deckard, I think, re responds in a really nice way where he says, you know, you play beautifully as if it just kind of doesn't matter. Um, and yeah, and she changes her hair, she pulls her hair out. And during this scene, it's a very dreamlike scene. Uh, Deckard for a, a time has fallen asleep and she's kind of on her own and she's wandering around his apartment. Um, I say in the article, I got into some real granular detail about how this scene is constructed, but there are a few subtle but interesting little kind of edits within the scene where she sort of seems to jump around the apartment a little bit or just sort of, does he kind of cut out these kind of temporal movements that we would normally see in a, in a scene like this? And it sort of makes for this kind of neurodivergent, neuroqueer space uh, aesthetic as Rachel is starting to rediscover herself as who she is, really. Um, really interesting. But then, of course, there is this con this pretty horrible moment immediately after that when uh, when she's prevented from leaving. She wants to leave. She's trying to leave the apartment, and Decker sort of slams the door shut and then um, kind of forces her to to say, uh, to, to well, forces her to, to say, kiss me, and then... Um, 
uh, and then they sort of end up embracing. It's all done in this very kind of like film noir vibe. There's the saxophone is going. The, there's the um, Venetian blinds are there, and it's this brutish kind of guy and this kind of vulnerable but sort of uh, enigmatic woman. And it's you know this kind of sex and violence going on in the same space. But it is also really a, a dis- disturbing and un- uncomfortable thing to watch to watch especially actually knowing that i mean this also spoils it a little bit but especially knowing that sean young who plays rachel was not having a good time during the filming of that scene either she i don't think she had a particularly good time during the filming of any of it but um so that doesn't really help matters either but yeah there's a sense also that there's a question mark around what what is deckard trying to do here is deckard also having a bit of a crisis in that he's sort of Coming, to, he's now sort of trying to come to terms with the fact that he is falling in love with somebody who is not a human being, who is effectively a robot, and he's having this existential moment of like, am I actually feeling these feelings towards this person or not? And she's struggling because she doesn't know whether her emotions are real or not, or whether she her are valid or not, and she's still trying to figure that out. And it all comes together in this kind of kind of clash of sex and dominance and and a gender uh, relationship. Um, so it's a complex moment in many ways. It's a complex scene, but it's um, it's certainly not something that's a, a particularly comfortable uh, thing to, to, to watch in, in certainly in the context of the present, present day, but, um, but interesting in its complexities around how we handle, well, the way I sort of see it now is like that it's an example of how not to, handle the situation when somebody is trying to like understand who they are and that Rachel is taking her time here in this scene as she's very gently and slowly changing her hair playing the piano looking at pictures figuring herself out and then Deckard is just like no this is who you are now you know embrace it uh, be this person um which is not necessarily the correct or safe way of doing such a thing and there has to be sort of a much more gentler process with it all but nevertheless, really, really fascinating. And I and I think Rachel is just such an interesting character to deal with. And it's sort of a shame that in 2049, she's just dead and gone. Although they do that weird sort of CGI scene where they kind of bring her back, which I was not, I didn't, wasn't ma- massively a big fan of. But anyway, yeah, Georgia, sorry. Yeah, I, I mean, I, both times I've watched this, but especially like the most recent time, I, I, I just was really com- uncomfortable in this scene, mainly because the way that all the other aspects in this scene are set up, like you say, are, are meant to make it quite sexy and quite um, stereotypically, this is a romance scene, that because you, you've got the sax going on in the background and everything. There's just so much, like, I feel like throughout the film, Deckard's relationship with every replicant, including Rachel, that has some violence to it, to it. His relationships with these people are based on on violence in a way and it doesn't have to be outright I'm gonna kill you it's also this exercising of control which is also why it really the thing that really bothered I mean I love I love 2049 the thing that really bothered me was the fact that the stakes for Deckard is that you know the thing that um Jared Leto's character offers him in the end in return for like you know not I can't remember what it is I think giving the child is that um he can have this clone of Rachel and it's this this huge like love story that this franchise depends on between Rachel and Deckard. And I was just sat there confused, like, but it does it doesn't feel like a love story at all. It feels like um someone who has been able to define 
what this person is. It's it's Deckard that carries out the test. It's Deckard that figures out. I mean, other than Tyrell, it's Deckard that you know figures out that Rachel is a replicant and sort of leads her to this realization. And then he's able to you know demand that you know she kisses him and they have this sort of bond, and it's this sort of control that he exercises over her for the rest of the film. And then in 2049, all of a sudden it becomes, you know, you know I, I miss my wife, <laughs> I miss my ex-wife type, type Christopher Nolan type, type narrative. And it just really confused me because I identified with, with Rachel's sort of helplessness and an inability, inability to escape how she's defined by others and this control that's exercised upon her by others there i mean there is that scene where she kills uh leon um and at that point she does have a sort of narrative agency um but you know at the end of the film it's it's deckard who allows her to escape and on all of these things like i find it i just found it this isn't really me really making a point it's just you know as I do identify with her character quite to quite an extent, and it, I feel really uncomfortable um, with that portrayal of her. Um, I think it's not necessarily a, a criticism on the film's part because I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting to play around with, but I think it's a shame that in twenty forty nine, you know, this this dynamic in their relationship is something that isn't really explored. You know, she 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 dies in childbirth, quite a horrible death she quite she meets quite a horrible ending and it's and it's all of that's kind of put back on him with the sympathy and it just makes me wonder you know um what is her legacy as a character as as a woman as a replicant it sort of all goes back to Deckard who in you could interpret as somewhat of an abuser um but you know that's also me coming at it from like a from like a feminist stance I think there's other ways of reading that um but I just find it interesting um how his relationships with every single replicant is based on he is a blade runner he has this implicit control over them um which I feel if we're reading these characters as like neurodivergent um it's something that that resonates um I do feel like with a lot of relationships that I've had there's been this implicit sense of control because the other person uh, is is naturally more proficient socially because of their neurotypicality um, and their ability to manipulate that, which is why um, this relationship is quite off for me. But that's my that's my feeling. <laughs> no, that's fair. Yeah. Well, we are coming up to our time, I think. Um... Uh, but maybe let's have just some some final thoughts. I mean, there's so much more that we could say about this film, but um, uh, and one of the main elements that I sort of put into the to the article, if people get a chance to read it, is to is to think about the the overall really sort of general aesthetic of the film and the way the camera moves and the the, the choices, the visual choices that Ridley Scott and the, the other filmmakers make here, and the fact that there is. Um, the, the quite often in this film we get these long periods of just the the, the camera almost getting let loose and just sort of drifting through the city and seeing all of the spectacle of the of the world um and there's been a lot of uh analysis of Blade Runner down the years it's been one of those films especially if you're if you do science fiction studies at all at any state at any stage Blade Runner comes up all the time um for various reasons but 
uh, a lot of previous uh, analysis of this film have sort of pointed to it as a kind of this example of of a postmodern vision where it's like a big spectacle but there's not really anything behind it but i think that i don't think that that's necessarily correct i think that um what we're getting here what we're offered here is this kind of sensory vision of so much stuff to look at and so much specific detail and so many uh incredible visions and spectacles and the the emphasis as you were talking about earlier lillian on um on sight and on eyes and on looking. I mean, the third shot of the film is in a, this massive disembodied eye that's overlooking right. the cityscape, right? And it's basically saying, and it's, it's this eye which doesn't belong to anyone. It doesn't really get matched to any character. It's not really Deckard's eye. It's not really anyone's eye. It's just this massive eye. The film is, is saying straight away at the beginning, it's saying, just, just look at this thing and like enjoy the spectacle of this. And I quite like that as a sort of, Something that I think that's something that science fiction and fantasy as as genres particularly do quite a lot. It's this kind of it's sort of indulge in the spectacle of this. And I sort of can see that from a neuroqueer perspective in a sense, because it's sort of saying, you know, there's this connection between autism and 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 sensory uh overwhelm or sensory intensity. And the film is sort of offering that straight away from the start and continually throughout. And I think I quite, I, I, that's another thing I really appreciate about this film. And it's a sort of, in my article, I try and make the link between this aesthetic and also the attitudes of the neurodivergent of the kind of replicant characters throughout, particularly Pris, but also Batty, um, and to a certain extent, Rachel, of saying, uh, this is the way that they see this world, whereas Deckard, etc., and the police chief Bryant, and maybe Chu, and maybe Tyrell don't see that anymore. They've become very jaded and very um, miserable, and don't sort of see the beauty of the world. And that's kind of the point I think that Batty is making in his "I've seen things that you people wouldn't believe" speech at the end. Um, and I, I like how to you sort of draw can draw all those lines together in the in the visuals of the film and also the sound. I mean, we, we we've mentioned Vangelis a few times, but like God, that soundtrack, that score is such a it's such an abundant thing and 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 so spectacular in its own right. And the stories of Vangelis like um, uh, creating this thing where he just sort of hauled away in his enormous place where he records stuff and just just can you know like orchestrated this entire score for this bizarre film and um with all these synths and and saxophones and so on it's an incredible piece of work and something i often listen to just while i'm working and while i'm writing and things it, uh, it's a uh, it has it's, it's a very moving score for me it sort of kind of quite profoundly moves me i feel don't know what, yeah. you, what are your thoughts on the score lillian yeah well but it it has this totality that I think sort of overwhelms and consumes everything. It almost yeah. has a sort of white noise effect to it. I find, um, yeah. I mean, I've I've had it on. I have a vinyl copy of it that I've all, I've sort of worn to death, just sort mm. of putting it on over and over again because I think it does have that. It has a relaxing quality to it. Yeah. I think it it play it it to me in this film. There's a lot of chaos and there's a lot of um yeah. distress and i think that it really it, it provides an anchor and a sort of grounding um which for me of course is i mean i, I i'm sure many um, people do this not just um autistic people but i um i can barely 
go outside unless I've got music playing in my ears um, yeah. because it, it helps to block out the noise of everything. And I think that the soundtrack in this film and indeed um, Hans Zimmer and Benjamin Wolfish's sort of adaptation of it in Blade Runner 2049 has a similar sort of um, effect. And I th- it also plays into the 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 noir elements yeah. of this film which i think are really important um that it does follow a sort of noirish narrative and i suppose the femme fatale is almost like a, 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 a an anti-manic pixie dream girl in some ways to yeah. sort of follow up on what we've, we've been talking about um that the, the woman who sort of refuses to just be um tame i suppose yeah um and yet is still there to be tamed and will be tamed ultimately in the end. So I suppose there is that aspect of it um, as well. And I suppose neuroqueerness is refusing to be tamed, um, yeah. which I suppose in this film, the characters that refuse to be tamed are the ones that end up dead. And the one that does become tamed is the one who goes off with Deckard at the end. Although as, as you said, um, by 2049, she too is dead. Um, mm. So it's, it's it's sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, I suppose, in, in the world of Blade Runner. Um, of course, the events of this film took place four years ago, which is quite <laughs> extraordinary. Um, how we all miss that and how the world has changed in, in again in those four years. Um, but I suppose that it's sort of easy to to laugh at that, but in in some ways we there are there are things that are still there and there are moments that sort of have a a resonance with with us in um the 2020s um yeah. as opposed to the ni- the 1980s and i i ideas of things um shoulder pads i suppose have come around again that's a big thing <laughs> <laughs> we but, don't have uh, flying cars yet but we do have we shoulder pads well exactly exactly um i i think that those elements are just uh, combining the the noir with with sci-fi is is something that you also hint at or, or gesture towards at the end of your paper, which I think yeah. is really wonderful. Which is 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 the other um, the rest of the science fiction landscape and and what it can offer to um, articulations of of neurodivergence and autism. And there are so many films. I mean, you mentioned Arrival and Annihilation, which I think are excellent examples. That yeah. other ones that. I would love at some point to be able to to have discussions about include films like uh, Her, AI, yeah. Cloud Atlas, and um, Kajo Ishiguro's sci-fi novels Never Let Me Go and Clara and the Sun, yeah. which have um, a lot of resonance with 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 Blade Runner. Um, After Yang is another interesting one. Anyway, there are loads, um, <laughs> and I and I hope that we'll be able um, at some stage to to be able to have discussions about all of these films because they 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 offer. They offer possibilities, and I think that the 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 genre that of this film lends itself to that perfectly. And of course, your your paper sort of encapsulates that um, re- really well. So, um, if people have enjoyed listening to this, I, I hope, I very much hope that they will go and read that um, and get something out of it. Thank you. Yes. Well, please do. I worked pretty hard on it. Um, yeah, I think you're right, and absolutely, absolutely, I would love. There's, there are more science fiction films beyond Blade Runner, who, which have, of course, been in, in, inspired by Blade Runner or follow on from Blade Runner, and and um, where these kind of discussions might also be really fruitful. But let's, um, we, we've gone pretty over time there, so let's round that up. 
Um, but yeah, so thank you very much. Thanks to Georgia and thanks to Lillian for your discussion around Blade Runner. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, this one has been a long time coming and I'm really glad we managed to to get to it and, and talk so fruitfully about it. Thank you so much. And thank you listeners for listening as well. If you do have any thoughts on Blade Runner or associated films around Blade Runner uh, in, a, in relation to neuroqueerness or autism or neurodiversity, um, then let us know. Just tweet us or, or send us an email. We'd be we would absolutely love to read that stuff. Um, so thank you once again for listening. Thanks for tuning in and uh, see you again soon. Goodbye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London. Our thanks to 344 Audio for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Many thanks for tuning in. Thank you.